You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks, as always. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. How about you? I'm doing well. You pumped for Brick? I am pumped for Brick. You watch it yet? No, I have not. I'm going to watch it tomorrow myself. I have seen it once before. I remember it as being a good movie. Kind of like a noirish detective story, but about high school kids. Well, I like almost all the words in that sentence. Which word did you not like? High school kids? I think you know which word I didn't like. It's not that I objected to noir detective shit, because right there you're speaking my language. So it's high school kids. It's high school kids. Okay, well, I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to be in for a treat. We're going to be recording the co-main event podcast Patreon Movie Club about Brick. On Wednesday, so if you want to get in on that, first of all, you got to join the Patreon. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event, sign up at the $10 level. That'll get you access to all the content. All the contents. Just content coming out your ears. Content on top of content, including Wednesday's Patreon Movie Club, where we'll be talking about Brick. Of course, you can also join at the $5 or $1 levels for varying degrees of access to all of that contents. We think you're going to like it. We also think you're going to like Brick. I think it's going to be a good show. Is it me or are the chairs particularly loud today? You're just moving your butt more than normal. I move my butt a pretty consistent amount. That's one thing I pride myself on, in fact. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll be honest, the chairs ain't getting any younger in here. (laughs) That's true. These chairs are are rode hard and put away wet every single day. By, uh, Man, I wish you hadn't said that. A group of children. About the chair, one, of, one of which I'm sitting in. I mean, you should have seen it before I cleaned it off before you got here. Looked like a fucking murder happened in that chair. And so, that's just after breakfast. That's one meal. I immediately regret bringing up the topic of these chairs. These kids can tear it down, man. I'm telling you. Well, we got a lot, a lot of stuff, it seems, to talk about this week because... While you know, we had ourselves a UFC event in Tampa, yep. we had some stuff that went down just on the whole general MMA fighting scene this PFL. past weekend. PFL last week uh, on Friday, I believe. Uh, then UFC Tampa on Saturday. Got a lot, you know, we had some, some one championship action over there across the Pacific. A lot of stuff going on. And then some stuff going on, as it were, outside the cage. Mm-hmm. So... We decided it didn't really fit that well into the standard three-round format we use, but we did get some good listener mail on it, and we thought, you know what? Been a while since we did All Questions Considered. Mm-hmm. Maybe using that as our guide, we kind of find our way through all the relevant topics this week. It's the proverbial too much shit going on episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Couldn't really force it into the normal three-round format here on the show. As you said, we got a lot of good listener mail this week, so we are going to try to get through as much of that as we can in the next hour or so. A great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut cigarettes t-shirt or a Dundasso t-shirt. Those are always available on demand all the time whenever you want them over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. Are you ready to do this? I'm ready to do it. First question this week comes to us from deceased former boxing heavyweight champion of the world, noted racist, John L. Sullivan. John L. Sullivan. Good to hear from him. The Boston strong boy. Is Joanna Champion the joker of MMA with these mind games, he writes. P.S. Did you see that badass mace that Aryan Boular walked out with? Well, that's Those are two different topics right there. I think we're going to focus mostly on the first question, but did you see the badass mate? I saw it. Yeah. We all saw it. It was hard to miss. Um, now, about Joanna Champion as the joker of MMA with these mind games, what, what's the mind game? Are we, ta- are we ascribing the weight cut thing to a mind game? I'm just glad we could get a Joker reference in here. Show we're on the cutting edge of uh, popular culture. Even though I feel like 
probably a given. Neither one of us has seen it yet. No. Not really on the on the to-do list either, I gotta say. <laughs> are, are there any movies in theaters that are on the to-do list at all? Man, I couldn't tell you what movies are in theaters. Come on. Who are you talking to? All right. That one actually is on my to-do list, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. And it feels like it's going to be one of those things that you hear about so much before you actually see the thing that it affects your viewpoint. But I'm not totally sure what we mean by mind games here. I can only be the weight stuff, right? I guess. And her description of it, when asked, and from stuff that I've read, both her talking about after the fight and I think maybe on Ariel Hawani's show today, actually makes some degree of sense. She was like, it wasn't going that well. She said at one point she put weight on and kind of had a freak out about it. And I know from talking to the UFC matchmakers and UFC executives and stuff, one thing that they say that they try to drill in the heads of fighters is, if you think you're going to have a problem, let us know in advance. And that could mean injury stuff, weight stuff. Basically, don't hide it from everybody until it springs up the last minute, at which point it may be too late for anybody to do anything about it. However, in this instance, it seems like maybe she was trying to follow that directive and things got all topsy-turvy as a result. You can see how it happens, right? That She says, oh, this isn't going that great. I don't know what's happening with the weight cut here, but I could be looking at a problem. Maybe I should give them a heads up just in case and we should see if there are options there. And then somebody... In that process, whether it's the UFC, her own camp, hard to imagine why it would be her camp, or Michelle Watterson's camp when they were reached, uh, the UFC reaches out to them about a catch weight, someone then leaks it to the media and it becomes then this story where we're all going, Joanna, having trouble with the weight. Yeah. And I can say from experience that Joanna J. Chick is the model UFC employee, for better and for worse. I mean, independent like, contractor. She is the person that they want the most. Like, if if you were to ask someone at the UFC, like, who is the most agreeable, who's the biggest company person in the company, who works for the company, they would say Joanna Yajajic. So I can imagine her taking pains to check every box that she's supposed to check about how her weight cut is going. So if you told me that she had uh, encountered some difficulties in her weight cut and immediately reached out to the UFC and told them, I would... 100% believe that. And it's pretty easy to see how a report of that nature, I don't want to say it would spin out of control because I don't want to give any credence to the post-fight narrative that this was like a media creation or that it was over the top or there was a hysteria created or anything like that. Uh, but you could see how it would get out. Yeah. Especially like you mentioned, you can't see why it would be someone from her camp, but she does train at ATT. Where there's okay. like a million motherfuckers in and out all the time. So uh, I don't know that we can like categorically say that it wasn't someone from Florida. But whoever it was, it was someone who was in the know. The word got out. It was accurately reported. And even in the wake of the fight today on the Ariel Helwani show, like you mentioned, even though we are doing our best to like spin this narrative that it's much ado about nothing. She's talking about how she and the UFC discussed a potential catch weight. So, like, something happened here. There was something to it. So There was something to it. So, like, if you hear anybody talking about how uh, don't believe anything you read or it's just a media creation, keep in mind that that's hogwash. Yeah. That, that everything that was reported about it seems to have some basis in what they, both sides are actually saying is happening. So, I mean, I can understand how you go through all that. It becomes a fight week narrative, maybe a bit of a distraction. Still seems to me like you could have put things to rest a little easier by just being like, hey, look, I had a problem, but I fixed it. I'm going to make the weight. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. But then I guess, you know, you, maybe you don't always know for sure if you're going to make the You hope you're going to make the weight. And she made the weight. And then she goes out there and beats Michelle Watterson. Now, I don't think based on the way this matchup looked on paper and then how it played out, kind of exactly how it looked on paper. Yeah. It doesn't seem like one where you needed mind games if you're Yoanni and Jacek. No. And that said, it certainly didn't look like she was suffering any ill effects of, of a weight cut or any kind of physical problem that she might have had headed into this fight. Because she went out there vintage Yoanni Jacek style and beat Michelle Watterson all kinds of up. Uh, en route to this unanimous decision win. Fought the last two or three rounds with a badly injured foot. Yeah, that foot was enormous by the time the fight was over. 
So an all-around incredible performance for the former champion there at straw weight. I would say it even looks to me like she's kind of getting better because she's rounding out the skill set a little bit more. Uh, there were two instances in this fight where she had to uh, weather a storm from Michelle Watterson where Watterson got on her back and was threatening with a choke. Uh, I think it was right at the end of the third that it happened the first time. But earlier in that same round, Joanna Jacek had taken Michelle Watterson down and had threatened her with what looked like it would have been a submission attempt had she gone after it, you know, a little bit more thoroughly. She ended up giving up on it and just going for position. But like, if Joanna Jacek is out here taking people down and going for submissions, we're in trouble because <laughs> she's already really good at the stand-up part of this thing. So it seems to me like. Not only has she not lost a step, not only is she still the fierce competitor that she always has been, and I would argue to her, it's one of the things that really, really sets her apart from the rest of the crowd in this division is that there is a mean-spiritedness there when she's fighting. And yet it's like a joyful mean-spiritedness. Yeah, no, she's she's a great person, and like after the fight, she's going to hug everybody, and she and Michelle Watterson had a nice moment backstage after it was over. But while you are out there, fighting her for 25 minutes. She seemingly is going to take pains to beat the ever-loving shit out of you. Yeah. In like, oh, in a, in a mean-spirited way that I think would be a detriment in any other walk of life, but as a professional <laughs> fighter is like an amazing quality to have. But now she's sitting on one fight win streak, Got, has won one in a row after that loss to Valentina Shevchenko. And we're immediately talking about her fighting for the title again. Yeah, two and yet, or three in her last five. And yet I don't hate it. Mainly because I kind of don't know right off the top of my head what else you do. Yeah. And because stylistically, Yuani and Jacek versus Zhang Li seems like that'd be a whole hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, from a fan's perspective, I don't know that it quite gets any better than that. And we talked about on Friday during the Power Hour how Jacek is going to be one of these people who is perennially going to be like one win away from a title shot at that weight. Uh, and you're right, stylistically, it would be a fun fight. Yelena Jacek's stand-up style is like a damn snowball. It starts at a certain pace, and you know, she's tagging you with punches, she's, she's blasting you with low kicks, and it's like it picks up momentum as you go. And yeah. she gets more confident. She starts to get a better read on you. And it's like the snowball gets bigger and bigger until you have a full-on avalanche of strikes yeah, on your hand. The, the string of combinations gets, gets longer and longer as the fight wears yeah, on, especially which is not how most people work. Down the like the stretch in this fight, every time Michelle Watterson tried to do something, Yajicic just punished her with like a two or three punch combo and a leg kick at the end of it, which just makes it seem like terrible... Uh, punishment to try to fight her. And I would love to see her try to take that style and put it up against Zhang Li, who we just saw kind of win the title out of nowhere with a stoppage of Jessica Andrade. However, you'll notice that I said, from a fan's perspective, right. it's an incredible fight. If you're the UFC, and you're pretty stoked about having uh, Zhang Li as your champion, trying to get the foot in the door over there in China in a little bit, uh, do you really want to throw her out there with Joanna Yajajic immediately? Because if you're the UFC, you already know promotionally what Joanna Yajajic brings to the table. And it ain't bad. It's fine. It ain't a billion people. Yeah, she's not Jimmy in the door and getting you into China. But <laughs> Yeah, I guess my question is, if you if not that, then what? What do you do? Yeah, that's the Rematch question. Rematch with Jessica Andrade? Uh, see if, how Rose Namajunas is feeling these days? I mean... You look down. I'm looking at the the UFC's rankings anyway right now, and you got Jessica Andrade at one. You know they do the thing where it's the champion, and then the next person is ranked number one. Jessica Andrade at one, Rose Namajunas at two, Tatiana Suarez at three, Nina Ansaroff, who said that she's going to take a year off to have a baby, at four, and then Yoni and Jacek at five. And I, I assume that has not been updated since in light of Yoni and Jacek's most recent win. So I don't know if you don't do that fight then I don't see you have a lot of good options. And yet, having a look at that foot at the end of the fight makes you think that it might be a little while yeah. before you end in JJ. Yeah. Just ruthless that she's still out there throwing the kicks. Yeah. when the foot, Did we ever get a, a, a confirmation on whether or not the foot was broken? It looked broken. Sure did. She said it was, but, you know, that was, you know, the 
in lieu of an x-ray, it feels broken kind of thing. Yeah. Who knows? All right. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, I'll keep it shortish. Crone Gracie believes two crazy things, and I'm wondering which is e- easier to argue. The world is flat, or he won his fight against Cub Swanson. Okay. I get it. I get what we're doing there. In fairness, it's not like he made a real deeply thought out and verbose argument for why he thinks he won the fight. I think he just posted on Instagram, posted like a screenshot of the two of them with the message, like on an Instagram story, I won that fight. Yeah. So, I mean, I still disagree. I still think you did not win that fight. Yeah. Don't even really think you won a round in that fight. But maybe we shouldn't go all in on talking about how ridiculous it is for him to be making that argument. Yeah, this was one... I agree that Cub Swanson obviously won the fight, and the 30-27s across the board, I think, are proper. Uh, But at the same time, don't you you think that this was kind of one where our perception of the fight was influenced at least in some way by the fact that we all knew what Crone Gracie either wanted to do or should do in this fight, and so the mere fact that he couldn't really do it and this thing was contested largely in the in Cubby Sampson's world, uh, made it seem like maybe a little bit more lopsided than it actually was. Like, I think uh, Cub Swanson deserved to win, but at the same time, like, anytime you see somebody go out there and take away from their opponent the thing that you know that they want to do, always kind of makes it seem a little bit more obvious yeah. who wins the fight. Whereas, like, I think the actual striking stats weren't all that, uh, you know, weren't all that far off. I think it was pretty close, a pretty close fight. On paper, maybe, but I think some of the the shots that Cub Swanson was hitting him with, especially in that first round, I the thing I came away most impressed with was Crone Gracie's toughness. He ate some monster body shots and some just solid connecting blows on the way in uh, against Cub Swanson, and I was surprised, as Cub Swanson was, it seemed, that he that the body shots never reached a point where you're like, okay, now it's adding up, and now he can't take it anymore. And yet... I did, when I'm watching this fight, I'm going, so your plan was that you're just going to come straight forward on Cub Swanson. You're kind of going to box your way into a clinch situation, and from there you'll get it to the ground. Which, that's not a great plan, man. Especially against an experienced fighter like Cub Swanson, who, he's just going to keep pivoting and cutting that angle and making you reset and come back in again. Yeah. I mean, you you wear him down a little bit, just cardio-wise, because you're forcing him to work so constantly. You're always in his face. And if you have the, the toughness and the cardio yourself to do that, then I can see how that might be a little bit of a strategy. But that's a strategy that requires you to wade through an awful lot of punishment. Just be, just thinking that eventually he's going to slow down and you're going to catch him. And hey, maybe if the fight was five rounds, maybe he does slow down enough for you to catch him at some point. But even when you get in there close and you're pulling guard and stuff like that, I'm wondering, there was this was the strategy for how we're going to get this fight into our world. Yeah. Because that is not great. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like Chrome Gracie's in a little bit of a tough spot. Because he's basically carrying the banner for the new generation of the Gracie family, at least in the UFC. And he comes into this fight 5-0, and so this was his first professional loss. But at the same time, he doesn't have a ton of mixed martial arts experience. He has a ton of grappling experience. But because of his name, because of the you know potential that he has as a prospect, and because, frankly, he looks pretty good getting off the bus, he finds himself in a fight with uh, Kevin Luke Swanson here at this point, which is a tall order, I think, for anybody to fight Cub Swanson in the sixth professional fight of their career. And, you know, just considering that he's 31 years old, uh, he's he's got the Gracie name, it's kind of like there's no option besides to throw Crone Gracie into the deep end a little bit here. But I come away from this fight thinking, like, he is missing a major part of the skill set that he needs to really compete at that level. Because he looks like the rest of the Gracies in terms of his ability to get a fight to the ground. Like if he's going to go out there and, and you know, the striking isn't bad, certainly couldn't keep up with, with a guy like Cub Swanson, but like if you managed to hurt Cub a little bit, but if you're going to go out there and really the only way you can win this thing is, is by submission, you need to have a better ability to get the fight into your realm. 
which is kind of like that's the thing that jujitsu players have have often lacked in yeah. the sport is takedowns. And Crone Gracie looks he looks like he is just an example of that. Well, yeah, and I think sport jujitsu does not really prioritize that as much as it probably should. They they just you, if you watch a lot of like sport jujitsu and you watch jujitsu tournaments and things like that. A lot of time, the takedowns are almost just an agreed-upon thing. Like, sometimes that we won't even really try to, to go for a takedown so much as we'll both just try to get down there without ending up in a bad position yeah. uh, on the way down. And they just don't prioritize it in training. And I say that as somebody who loved his time training jujitsu, and yet we did not do a whole lot of takedowns. We just didn't do much wrestling in there. And maybe the thing is... That when jujitsu guys get into MMA, the thing they always seem to think is, well, I need to shore up the striking side because I don't have that yet. And I have this other stuff, so I need to at least get good enough to where I'm not a liability to myself for every moment that the fight remains on the feet. But then I really want to do the grappling thing, so I'll, I'll work toward that. And I still think about that conversation I had with Demi Maya and his manager, coach, Eduardo Alonso, where he was talking about we had to, like, we made that mistake. Where he went for a while thinking like, okay, I'm training a lot of boxing. So now I'll go in there and I'll box people. And instead of thinking what you ought to be doing is using your boxing, like only training boxing with an, an eye toward getting it to where you want it. Like your boxing should be the thing that facilitates your takedowns, not a thing that is a goal unto itself. Yeah. Maybe the answer is Krong Gracie goes to Dagestan for, for six months. Swims in the river with Habib. <laughs> goes over there. Just works on like that, that kind of takedown heavy uh, wrestling game and uses that to complement his skill set instead of being like, you know what I need to do is go to Thailand and do some kickboxing for six months. But they never seem, jujitsu guys just never seem to think of it that way. Yeah. Were, were you afraid Habib was going to drown? I was. I was like, I'm going to wake up one morning and find a headline that says Habib Nurmagomedov drowns in river in Dagestan. He's out there swimming in the damn river. Come on, man. Get a pool. Get a pool. That's Yeah, he'll call the, uh, the Dagestan Pool Company. <laughs> the guys that come dig a pool for you in your backyard in Dagestan. Yeah, he could have that pool anywhere he wanted. All right, did you see the outpouring of emotion here from Cub Swanson? Yeah. After this yeah. thing was over? That was touching. Gets a, a check in the left-hand column here for the first time since his win over Artem Lobov in April of 2017. Snapped a four-fight losing streak. Uh... It was. It was kind of like a feel-good moment to see Cub Swanson get that win and, and see how much it meant to him, especially at, at 35 years old and a guy who's been in the UFC slash WEC for so long. A uh, nice win for him, I thought. Yeah. And uh, yeah. also, though, kind of reminded me of uh, when Duho Choi, the Korean Superboy, called out Cub Swanson. You try to use Cub Swanson as your your stepping stone at your peril. Yeah, it seems like he still make you pay for that. He's got a little bit of the same uh, Donald Cerrone, like be careful, be careful. You if you try to set this guy up to to boost your prospect up there because he might just catch an L. Next question this week comes to us from Lieutenant Mark Rumsfield. Oh, okay. I'm gonna assume that's a character from Super Troopers without googling it. I'm not gonna Google it either. All right, we're just gonna assume that's who it is. This is for you. This is a question for you. The soul of this jujitsu nerd hurts a little bit this morning after seeing Dern and Gracie lose last night. Going forward, which of the two styles do you think has a better chance of adapting and evolving uh, to the MMA world? Dern with her swing hard in case you hit something approach or Gracie with his cover up and eat shots until you're close enough to brawl in the clinch and then jump guard approach? Uh, Mackenzie Dern's. I think for a couple of reasons, but I also think that uh, the... The chances that she'll just go out there and manage to find her way, I think she can refine a few things. I think that, I mean, the swing hard until you hit, and in case you hit something approach seems to leave her off balance for a lot of the fight, which that's a problem. But I think that that's somewhat easily fixed. And I think that she just athletically can make up for some of the holes in her game right now. Whereas for, Chrome Gracie, he's in one of the talent, most talent-rich divisions out there. Yeah. He's going to be fighting a lot of tough guys. He, he's got that name to carry around with him. 
they're not going to be able to give you easy fights forever. I mean, maybe they overmatch you a little bit by having you jump right up to Cub Swanson, but still, you're going to have to fight some of these tough guys. There's not many easy fights in the UFC in those weight classes. And if that's all that you're going to do, other people are going to see that fight, this Cub Swanson fight, and they're going to think, well, I can do that. Like, that's not that tough to counter. And I, I think just if you have to choose between those two, and you ask me which one I wanted to try to make some changes to and mold into somebody who could be a, a contender really soon, I'd say Mackenzie Dern. It is remarkable that Mackenzie Dern was even out here. Yeah. Having a professional mixed martial arts fight, what, a little bit more than four months after she gave birth to her first daughter? That's insane. I've watched this happen three times now. Yes. Yes. You watched it happen twice. Uh-huh. Growing another human being inside your body and then forcing it out is not a small thing. That's That takes it out of you. There's some recovery involved yeah. after that. And so who knows when Mackenzie Dern was able to get back into training and have a damn camp to get ready uh, to fight Amanda Rebos in this fight. So, like, she didn't win, but at least she was, like... I mean, I don't even know if I would say that it that I would consider it uh, that I would recommend it. No, you know, being out there four months after having a baby—that's just that's some MMA fighter shit. It is, especially if you just think about what your life is like in the first four months with a new baby in the house. Even just even disregard the physical stuff for just a second. Yeah. which you're right. I, mean, I remember reading something when my wife was pregnant with either a first or second that was basically talking about, hey, we think. That the human gestation period should probably be longer than nine months, but nine months is about the limit until the baby has just drained all your resources, until the baby kills you from just being inside and just taking stuff from you. And so that's when you're born, why you were born at nine months. And then to go through that, go through the actual birth process, and then go through the first few months of being a new parent and be like, I'm going to squeeze a training camp in. Squeeze, squeeze a training camp in and then go in there for a professional goddamn cage fight. Prize fight. I she, would not recommend it. She must be getting a lot of help around the house from professional surfer Wesley Santos. <laughs> well, I mean, good news about having a professional surfer uh, as your, your co-parent is like, it's not like he's like, I got to get on this conference call so I can't take the baby right now. Yeah, he's probably has, he probably makes his own schedule. Yeah. Don't you think? I would think so. Now, I don't know anything about the... Uh, the crowd that Mackenzie Dern and professional surfer Wesley Santos runs with it runs with, but like, can you imagine being at a party and you're just like meeting people and you're like, oh, you know, I'm a, an accountant. This is my husband. He's a dentist, and they're like, pro fighter and professional surfer. <laughs> See, I sometimes feel that way when looking through the little uh, like address book of the preschool that my youngest daughter goes to because every other person in there, it's like, uh, husband. Some kind of legal or finance job, uh, wife, pediatrician, some kind of doctor. And then me and my wife were like, a couple of writers. Yeah, we fucked up not getting into finance, bro. <laughs> Should have been a pediatrician. Next question this week comes to us from Eamon Dunphy, who I believe is the uh, renowned Irish broadcaster okay. who writes us on occasion. It's good to hear from him. So Connor McFuckup turns up to okay. court. All right. So you know where this is yes. going. Yeah. I think and I is do. given three weeks to decide how he will plead in a case where, A, he is caught on camera landing a sucker punch to an old guy with a better chin than Jose Aldo. Oh, wow. And B, after he has gone on TV in the U.S. confessing that he done it and he was wrong, if his legal team, and there's also video, right? Uh, if his legal team get him out of this, maybe he should look to change his nickname to Connor Houdini McGregor. Oh, and in a totally unrelated issue... Irish media claim the cops here are investigating a, quote, famous sportsman in relation to a sexual assault on Friday, the same sportsman under investigation for rape in a Dublin hotel. I'd sure hate to be the person responsible for promoting this sportsman. He's probably pulling his hair out of this stage. Okay. Wink, wink. Discuss. See what you did. See what you did, Eamon Duffy. So, where do you go here? Conor McGregor, so he's in court for punching the old guy. There are reports... On the internet that at some point his entourage forced a woman into a car in Los Angeles and was banned from a restaurant. Delilah's. Banned from Delilah's. Those reports have been disputed. 
And now this this report uh, in the Irish media, which basically we know is Conor McGregor because the New York Times already put his name out there as the guy who's connected to this other alleged rape at the Dublin Hotel. Yeah, how many famous Irish sportsmen are there who are currently under investigation for rape? Could be Eamon Dunphy. Maybe he's trying to throw us off the the. Is, is he the a scent sportsman? Here. It's not a sportsman. Uh, see? The same day we're alleged this happened, that he was in the court for uh, punching the old fella at the bar. I don't... I mean, on one hand, it seems like the evidence continues to mount that maybe Conor McGregor is just not worth our time. Maybe he's just a horrible person. Uh, above and beyond that, I don't even know how you begin to talk about moving forward with like a professional fighting career no, at this point. I don't either. Your, your concern should be, are you moving forward into prison time? And if... We're still out there. If people are still going to still be out there, like calling out Conor McGregor and thinking about this big money fight they think they're going to get. And here is where I think all the fans should be like, hmm, do I want to see this person? Do I want to see this person fight? Do I want to support this person's fighting career? Because the way it's looking right now, that's harder and harder to feel good about, man. Yeah. I feel just done with the guy, to be honest yeah. with you. This, this most recent report. Of the alleged Friday sexual assault was just kind of like the last straw. I was just sort of like, forget this guy, man. The It's just hard to even, even fathom that... Imagine, in a hypothetical scenario, that the famous sportsman in question were Conor McGregor. And you're in court of a morning. And again, I, even Duffy makes a good point that... We're going to court and giving you time to decide how you want to plead. When we all saw the damn thing, you admitted to doing it. What are we? What is there to talk about anymore? What? How, how can we not resolve that one by now? Yeah, and of course, like as we talked about the last time, the laws in Ireland are different than they are in America, and it takes uh, the laws in Ireland take a much more stringent approach to protecting the identities of uh, both the victims and the people who have been charged or could be charged or being investigated in these crimes. But at the same time, like I said at the top, like there was already the New York Times story that put Conor McGregor's name on this earlier rape. And so like uh, to tie this new, quote, famous Irish sportsman to that original crime, you know, shout out to the Irish media for trying, but like that, you're not... No one, no one's anonymous here anymore. Yeah. So, will be interesting to see how that plays out. Interesting. <laughs> That's the word you want to use there. From Isaac Spooner, the next question. So Sarah Kaufman's party got pooped. Did she tempt the MMA gods? Maybe one of the lesser ones whose usual job is to pay attention to cage warriors and LFA. So uh, Sarah Kaufman lost the unanimous decision to Larissa Pacheco. At PFL 7 uh, over the weekend, Ben. This, of course, as we have talked about before, Sarah Kaufman out there competing in the PFL Women's Lightweight yeah. Tournament. So way out of her normal uh, bantam weight, 135-pound class. She was in the semifinals. Uh, she lost to Larissa Pacheco. Uh, Kayla Harrison won her fight against Bobby Joe Dalze and moved on. Uh, get this, armbar. Oh, no way. Yeah. So I think that's your final, right? Larissa Pacheco versus Kayla Harrison. As of right now, yep. Is is where we're at. Uh, everybody likes Sarah Kaufman. I feel like you got to give her props for even being out there at yeah. 155 trying to fight uh, these much larger opponents. But, of course, you know that the final that the PFL and everybody else wanted to see was Harrison versus Kaufman. So to have only half of that final advance to the, to the championship fight in that tournament, a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. And I got a question uh, in my mailbag on The Athletic today about Kayla Harrison and basically somebody being like, you know, Kayla Harrison seems very likable. And yet when I watch these fights as this playoff season goes on, I am forced to wonder, wait a minute, is she just beating up much smaller fighters and how good am I supposed to feel about that? Which I don't know if... If that's her fault too much, you know, she, that's the weight that she weighs. If we want to tell her, hey, you've got to get down to, uh, even if you get down to 145, 
then we're kind of hypocrites about saying like, oh, we don't want to see people do extreme weight cuts, but we're going to make you do one because we don't feel like that weight class really exists. But then even if you did that, it's not like there's a ton of 145 pounders out there for PFL to choose from right now. So that just seems to be kind of the way it's going to go. And you're right. I mean, I do give Sarah Kaufman a lot of credit and it was kind of feeling like a feel good story, especially that Sarah Kaufman is going to win a million dollars and maybe think about replacing her sofa. Maybe, (laughs) you know, uh, maybe not even that. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a little bit sad to see that. I don't know if I would say that she tempted the, the MMA gods too much more that she just ran up against one of the things that can happen, especially when you're giving up a bunch of weight to go up there and try something. Yeah. In some ways, and clearly this is Sarah Kaufman's choice, right? She, she wanted to go fight in the lightweight tournament, get the shot at that money, maybe get the, the chance to fight Kayla Harrison. But, like, we had this situation at uh, UFC Tampa where Michelle Watterson fought Ioannia Jacek, and the size difference was notable. Yeah. Because uh, Michelle Watterson is probably an atom weight, if you want to talk about her natural or, or most legitimate fighting weight. But some of these MMA promotions still in, in 2019 going on 2020 just don't have all the women's weight classes. So you are still in kind of an unfortunate situation for some of the athletes where – uh, you know, that women's MMA, I guess, is still in a developmental phase or a phase where we're just not going to offer all of those weights because of uh, depth and availability of talent and whatnot. But it is, it creates a different playing field uh, for the people who are trying to compete there rather than the men where basically all of the weight classes that you would want are available. Except for the 165. The 165, the one that people all want. Yeah. Kayla Harrison did ink a multi-fight extension also with the PFL. So if you do think that she is in a somewhat unfortunate position to be fighting in this weight class where there is not a lot of talent and to be in the PFL and to be kind of taking on people who are smaller and maybe be not the uh, cream of the crop A-list opponents that she could be taking on if she were in the UFC, it seems like she's going to be there for a while. Yeah, and maybe that's another one of the things that makes people feel weird about it is PFL clearly wants to be in the Kayla Harrison business. Yeah. And so when you're watching some of these fights and Kayla Harrison is armbarring people up and right and just bullying people and you're going, well, okay, that seems to be the outcome that the promoter wants. Uh, and that's always a little bit of a weird feeling. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler, who writes, this is the most MMA shit of all time. A PFL fire, fighter retired after losing a decision to Magomed Magomed Karimov just to fill in 40 mile, 45 minutes later as an alternate in a one-night tournament. Then he proceeded to get knocked the fuck out in that fight. I don't know if there's a question here. But the, <laughs> it's not me editorializing. That's, that's, that's the, Kevin Schuler admitting to us that, uh, that there may not be a question there. That is some MMA shit. And also some, some tournament shit. I mean, that's when you do a tournament in MMA... These are one of the risks that you run, that somebody's going to win but not be able to continue, and then you have to have a plan for that. I mean, the plan to have the guy who just fought and lost and then retire. I mean, I love the retirement part of it. That is what makes it the most MMA shit. Because to have to go back on your retirement the same night, (laughs) that's already, you know, peak MMA kind of bullshit. But also, I kind of imagine psychologically, that's got to be just such a weird thing to go through. Because maybe you're thinking this PFL tournament, this is your last shot. This is your last big attempt to really make some money and make a go of it in this sport. You lose and you figure, all right, it's not going to happen for me. That was it. That was all I had in me. I'm done. And you are maybe in the very beginning stages of trying to make your peace with that. And when they come and they say, hey, uh, Get your gloves back on. We need you to fight tonight. Yeah. This is welterweight Chris Curtis. He did, in fact, lose to Magomed and Magomed Karimov in the curtain jerker, the main card, then came back, got knocked out via KO 11 seconds into the second against Ray Cooper uh, in the co-main event. So two losses for Chris Curtis on the night that he was going to call it quits. I assume he's still going to call it quits, or do you think he caught the, caught the bug again? Being out there against Ray Cooper, maybe he's like, I can't go out like this. You think I can't go out with two losses in one night? Do you think getting knocked out is the thing that makes you like, you know what? No, I really do love this. I can't. I can't leave it. I can't walk away. Jeremy Thompson writes us, loyal Patreon boy here, he says, watching the Davis versus Gifford fight with the commentary from the count, it was apparent what he thought should happen by the middle of round one. Gifford was getting tuned up. 
After the end of the second round, the corner of Gifford would not throw in the towel with an obviously outclassed, if not already beaten, fighter, even though the fighter responds with feeling horrible but wanting to fight, and his coach emphatically pleading with him to stop getting cracked in the skull. We're treated to a third round, uh, much the same, except that it ends in extra CTE doses for Gifford. The ref threatened, like they always do, to take action at some point in the future. Not sure if it was hard or a soft warning. Bisping even called out the ref that he should man up and stop the fight to protect the fighter. Where does the responsibility for this type of fight take place? Do you think the referee... Uh, would have faced backlash if they'd stopped it, discourse as necessary. I think that this is one where it's more on the corner than on the referee. The referee could have stopped it at the end of round one when it was looking really bad and there was an opportunity. But then I can see how if you're the ref and the round's almost over and you're telling the guy to move and he does move a little bit, doesn't necessarily improve his lot that much, but he's still reacting and still seems like maybe he's in the fight. And then after that, there weren't as many moments where it just seemed like uh, Davis was pouring it on and like there was an opportunity to get in there. What instead it seemed like was it was so obvious early on that Davis was faster and a, a better striker and was just piecing Gifford up, hitting him hard with all kinds of stuff. And Gifford just did not really have much of a reaction much of a response that he could do to that and his attempts to kind of get it to the ground is like you're going to try an Minari roll or he he never was anywhere near getting this fight where he wanted it or really being competitive yeah. in the fight and yeah. that's the thing where when you're watching that after two rounds of that and the guy is clearly pretty beat up and he's his chances aren't getting better they started out bad they were bad in the first minute of the fight, and they got worse with every minute that passed. And if you're the corner, that's when I think you do need to be asking yourself, what are we hoping for here exactly? Why are we sending him out for the third round? And it's so ingrained in the fighters, they have to have this mindset that they're going to walk through absolutely anything if they have to, just to be able to get in there and go through the stuff they got to go through. So that's why I think it's more important that the corner maintains an ability to be honest with themselves about what they're seeing and about what the chances are and to say, like, hey, it's not going to happen for us and we're not going to send you back out there tonight. Yeah. I want to do this question also because it, it ties in a little bit from Roland Bleasy who writes, I've been really enjoying the commentary from Bisping and Brennan Fitzgerald, a.k.a. New Goldie. I often find the three-man booth too crowded. What did you gentlemen think of them and, and what would your commentary dream team be from the current roster? Uh, I really like Bisping. I feel like he's doing a great job. He seems to have settled into it more. Yeah, on on color commentary right now. And the 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 fights where I feel like you need him are in fights like Mike Davis and Thomas Gifford. Yeah. Where Bisping has so much experience and he is so uh, open about it and willing to talk about it that... Uh, you know, he speaks from a place of authority when he comes down on the side of like, okay, this one needs to be stopped because uh, Michael Bisping knows from where he comes in that yeah. regard. See, if it was Joe Rogan doing that, it, people would be like, oh, LOL, another Joe Rogan freakout. Joe Rogan has seized on a narrative that he can't let go of or is just getting overhyped with his own commentary and he's blowing it out of proportion. But you're right, when Bisping does it, that's a guy who waded through a ton of physical damage in his own career. And if he's looking at that and going, this has no point to it. This needs to be stopped. And he said several times, this isn't a fight anymore. The guy's just getting beat up. And you're right. I mean, there's such a weird attitude of either we want to keep sending the guy out there because there's a chance. There's always a chance. Maybe he pulls off some kind of Hail Mary victory or because you think that there's some tough guy points to be won by just not being finished. Yeah. And there's not. There's really not. I mean, especially he made it through all that, got knocked out in the last 15 seconds, got yeah. face planted in the last 15 seconds. What did he gain from that? Yeah, in some ways, I feel like you can understand the mindset, especially that it's so ingrained both with the coaches and the fighters to go out there and... and you know, be a game from start to finish, no matter what happens, triumph over the adversity, et cetera, et cetera. You've, you've already sacrificed so much just to get there. Uh, I feel like the, the reasons that you wouldn't want to throw the towel are obvious, but at the same time, like people can get really seriously injured or killed in a combat sport. 
So you kind of need to be able to pull the trigger, especially when you can do it between rounds, which is like, you know, somewhat more graceful than actually literally throwing the towel in there during the fight to stop it. You can just, you know, tell the referee that, that you're not sending your guy back out there and they can stop it. And it would be, you know, it's not the way anyone wants to see a fight end, but at the same time, it wouldn't be all that remarkable. No. I feel like we would just be like, that was probably the right decision. Yeah. And especially when you think about the times we've actually seen it happen. Not that often. I was writing about it on Sunday, and we have not seen that very often in MMA. But the times I think about, I think about uh, Duke Rufus doing it with Anthony Pettis. When Anthony Pettis had broken his hand against Tony Ferguson, and Duke Rufus telling him, hey, we're not going to, there's no point to going back out there right now and trying to just do the, the best you can against a guy like this. And Trevor Whitman doing it with Nate Marquardt. Both of those situations, by the way, too, uh, trainers who had a long and very personal relationship with those fighters. Yeah. But nobody came away from either of those situations going, well, you fucked up. Yeah. You robbed him of an ability to compete. He, he wanted to go out on his shield and you wouldn't let him. Or, you know, you, you didn't believe in your fighter. Nobody came away from those with any kind of negative feelings. Yeah. And, no, I agree. And yet we don't, it's, it's shocking that we don't see it more often, especially in these fights where it's clear he's not going to beat that guy. Next question this week comes to us from Adjusting 2. I'm sorry? Adjusting 2, Electric Boogaloo, the sequel to Adjusting 1. Okay. All right. That's an interesting choice. Adjusting 2 writes, what are your thoughts on Chito Vera? Uh, He's won five fights in a row. Who do you think is next? I talked to Marlon Chito Vera leading up to this fight against Andre Ewell at UFC Tampa. Uh, Not only does he have five fights in a row, five wins in a row, he's got five stoppages in a row at this point. Uh, and talking to him was kind of interesting because he is the only fighter from Ecuador to ever make it to the UFC. So, like, even though we don't know who or you know, Marlon Vera is not, like, a big name in MMA, he's, like, kind of famous in Ecuador because he's the only UFC fighter. So, like, he has a uh, a promotional deal with Pepsi in Ecuador. Really? And, like, he's got all these kind of, like, uh, uh, big-time sponsors. Like, he has the Ecuadorian equivalent of Toyo Tires. And like he got honored by the Mex or the Ecuadorian Parliament when he was at home last time, they gave him like the the Presidential Medal of Freedom, essentially. And so like he's an interesting guy because he, you know he's still making a name for himself in the UFC, but like he's got a kind of a big following at home. And he told me flat out like when they called him to be on the Ultimate Fighter Latin America in 2014, he was not ready. Because, like, he was still training and fighting in Ecuador. And he was, like, it was one of those situations where, like, he would go to, like, a BJJ gym and get okay training. And then he would go to a boxing gym and get okay training. But there were no, like, high-level MMA coaches for him to work with. And he was still kind of, like, putting it all together himself. And he said, frankly, like, he wanted to say no to the UFC because he didn't feel like he was ready. But he was, like, I mean, I'm a nobody from Ecuador. If I tell him, no, I don't want to be on tough Latin America they're never going to call me back. Yeah. Like, if you're Israel Adesanya, maybe you can tell them I'm not quite ready yet. Call me in another year. But for Marlon Vera, I had to pretty much learn as I went. So, like, the dude is only 26 years old at this point. He's obviously five years into his UFC career. It does seem like he's kind of putting it together and, like, figuring stuff out in a way that he didn't have it figured out when he first came to the UFC. He also hasn't fought a ton of of A-level bantamweight opponents so we'll see what happens when he gets there. But, you know, five stoppages in a row, you can't really... That's nothing to sneeze at right there. No, and then I, I looked... You're right about the... hasn't fought a ton of A-level opponents, and I guess that's the explanation for why you win five in a row and not anywhere in the top 15 on the UFC's rankings. All things being equal, he should probably be ranked yeah. at this point. But again, when you come to those UFC rankings, I don't know that you're dealing with a uh, voting public that has encyclopedic knowledge... Of the 135-pound division, let's say. Fair point. Next question this week comes to us from Joe Burrow. He writes, So I got on Twitter after Davison Figueredo choked out Tim Elliott and called out Joe Benavidez on Saturday night to see that my guy Joe B took it to notes. He took it to notes? To address being called out and the situation with Henry Cejudo, basically saying he isn't sure Cejudo will come back to flyweight to fight him and that he is down to fight the god of war for the 125-pound strap ASAP. After this win, what do you think the right move is for the UFC at 125 with the uncertainty surrounding Cejudo and this crackerjack of a fight sitting right there? Discuss, if you will. Uh, We have long 
bantered Ben about just how long the UFC was going to let Triple C Henry Cejudo go on being the champ champ uh and it seems at this point like he is admitting that he is more interested in bantamweight at the moment than he is at flyweight so what's the way forward here yeah I keep hearing Henry Cejudo say stuff like he knows it's unfair to hold up both divisions and that he's going to have to make a choice there and that going to keep saying like that a conversation must happen at some future point but we don't seem to be getting closer to that conversation I think if everybody needs to be honest with themselves and if he's not going to fight at 125 which I can see why he wouldn't yeah I can see why he would decide it's not feasible to defend both belts and if I have to choose 135 seems like the better way forward for a couple different reasons fine I, I I get that then it would be nice to see him voluntarily give up the belt and then let's put together a, a fight with Joe B in it for the vacant title or admit that you don't care about the division and you're going to get rid of it yeah you can understand why the weight cutting being easier and the the bigger money fights at 135 that would seem more appetizing than going down to 125 for what would be an incredibly difficult fight against Joseph Benavidez at the same time i also kind of understand uh why Henry Cejudo might just hang on to that title unless someone asks him for it, right? Like, <laughs> he's got really good seats at a like a ball game. Maybe that's not where he's supposed to be sitting. But at the same time, he's just going to try to be cool and sit there until someone comes up and asks to see his ticket. Like, yeah. He's not going to voluntarily give the belt up. He's going to wait for Sean Shelby to call him. I don't blame him for that. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington, who writes, Do we need to add horizontal Nico Price the Mount Rushmore of situational MMA legends. I think he'd look great between Chuck with that look in his eye and sea level Kane. Please discuss the prowess and potential of the powerful prone pugilist. Yeah, you got motivated BJ Penn, sea level Kane, uh, Nico Price off his back. I mean, that's horizontal Nico Price is actually pretty dope. So <laughs> I'm into that. I feel like several days removed from this, I still wake up screaming, thinking about the noise of Nico yeah, Price's heel. It was heel. the noise that was the worst part. Especially since they replayed it, and it sounded like someone hitting a golf ball. It sounded like someone driving a golf ball when uh, Nico Price upkicked James Vick right in his face, right in his jaw. And this was one of those times when they didn't quite get the camera away from the knocked out fighter in time. You got to see poor James Vick... Uh, Basically being supported by the doctor, just looking all kinds of out of it with his jaw hanging kind of weird, yeah, blood coming out of his that's mouth. That's not a good sign. Nasty. It's a nasty exchange. It seems like, have we all made our peace at this point, that Nico Price is going to be that guy who goes out there, gives you a damn show, and he's going he's gonna to win some and he's going to lose some that yeah. way. But it's always going to be fun, and yet he'll never climb above a certain level because of that, because of that fighting style that... Puts him at risk at times, and he's going to lose some here or there. But, you know, immediately people started talking about, hey, about Nico Price versus Mike Perry. Yeah, I'd watch the shit out of that, man. Yeah, he's one of those guys, right? He's one of those guys that uh, that is going to give you a good fight and a guy that you would watch fight almost anybody. You're right that he, like, he has been on kind of a uh, win-one-lose-one track for the majority of his UFC career. Came into the octagon undefeated, but had only fought in Florida for the fight time promotion. Uh, and then, you know, since he fought Vince, Vicente Luque in 2017, he's kind of, he's been a little bit up and down kind of at the 500 level. But yeah, man, if you're going to knock somebody out with an upkick, if you're going to go out there and do crazy shit like that, you're, you're probably going to have a home in the UFC as long as you want it. What about James Vick though? Now 32 years old. I think we got a question about that there, right? Oh, did we? Is that coming up next here? And Grayson Wagner. Oh, uh, Grayson Wagner. Is James Wick the new Stefan Struve? He seems like he should be better than his record suggests just by looking at him. He is quite tall. Yeah, but a little chinny. Not taking some of these blows super well. Yeah, three knockout losses. Well, four losses in a row. Three of them by knockout at this point. And then the decision loss to Paul Felder in there also from February of this year. That's troubling. That's a troubling trend. Knocked out by Justin Gaethje. Who will knock you out? Yeah, Dan Hooker, who will knock you out, and then Nico Price kicks him in his face. So, uh, it's not a, a great trend. No, for him, it's an extremely troubling trend. I would think might be time to think about your future in this sport. In fact, especially because 
doesn't it seem like this is probably the point where the UFC lets him go? Yeah, he said that before this fight. I think he said, I need to win this one or I'm probably done in the UFC. So, uh, you know, keep Bellator on the speed dial. See what Scotty oh, Cokes oh, is up on. to. Come on. They'll call him. They'll call him. Don't worry. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. This next question, we got time for a few more here. Next question from Christian Cullen, who writes, With Jeremy Stevens and Yair Rodriguez fighting again this week after the unfortunate eye poke incident a That's few, this week? few weeks ago. Are they Already? on this... Uh, Man. Chris Weidman, Dominic Reyes. I, I card? think you're right. I think that they are. Man, that's that. We really didn't waste any time at that one. We got right back after. I'm sorry, I interrupted the question. But go on. That's okay. That's your six fight main card on ESPN Network this weekend from TD Garden in Boston. Yair Rodriguez versus Jeremy Stevens is the co-main event. Of course, we got to get Greg Hardy on there. For of course, of course, you do. Uh, will they get another full purse and therefore earn twice as much as they otherwise would have? Does this create some sort of weird incentive for fighters to have no contests? And have the same fight rebooked a short while later. This is a great question. I don't know. I don't know what the pay situation is or was with Yair Rodriguez and Jeremy Stevens. Well, you got to assume that they at least got their show money for the last one, the no contest, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, to have them show up to do it again, you would think that they would get paid a, a second time. Although... I don't know if you're going to see too many dudes conspire to. Yeah. See, this is like one of those conspiracy theories where it assumes on the the most basic level a fundamental ability to work together and coordinate things that already is beyond what we've seen. Like the fighters can't get together to form a, a union, yeah. but they can get together to conspire to have a no contest and then rebook the fight so that they can get paid twice. Yeah. I mean, I could see Mike, a guy like Michael Bisping going for it, being like, look, I don't have that eye anyway. <laughs> Just poke me in it and we'll both get out of here with double pay. I mean, I would be, if I found out that two fighters in the UFC had put their heads together and come up with a plan to work a no contest and then do the real fight a few weeks later just so they, just for the double paychecks. I'd be more impressed than anything. Yeah. I wouldn't even be a little bit mad at him. You're also, not only are you taking a big gamble with just the eye poke, you're taking a big gamble that they would want to rebook that thing. Yeah. Because, like, you're going to do it with Jeremy Stevens and Yair Rodriguez. You're not going to do it with, you know, two two Joes off the street. You probably just tell those guys, go home, we'll call you in a few months. Um, doesn't it seem like it, it was such a short time ago that Yair Rodriguez was kind of a, I don't want to say beloved figure, but at least regarded more positively. And this whole situation with the Jeremy Stevens thing has really changed a lot of people's perspective on Yair Rodriguez. Now he goes into this fight against Jeremy. You go from being like the hometown favorite and everybody loves you and they're happy to see you to then now you're going to go into Boston and maybe MMA fans just generally feeling more negatively about you. Yeah, it was a weird heel turn for Yair Rodriguez. Kind of funny, though, that, like, the reaction to those two guys getting in that hotel dust-up where they were yeah. both dropping gay slurs at each other was, like, the reaction was sort of like, well, we would expect this from Jeremy Stevens. But Yair <laughs> Rodriguez, he seems so nice. Yair yeah. Rodriguez, no way. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, there's going to be a very different response to Yair Rodriguez walking out for this one than there was for the last one. Yeah, well, another spinning elbow KO. You'll love him again. Okay, maybe. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, Is Abe Kawa versus Ali Abdelaziz the best manager rivalry since the British Bulldog sicked Matilda on Bobby the Brain Heenan? Wow. So a scuffle, a reported skirmish, an exchange backstage at the PFL here between two noted MMA managers. This, I was sitting at it was, home. It was Malky Kawa, right? In the, no, it was Abe. It was Abe? In yeah. the, but Malky Kawa also had a physical inter... Uh, Confrontation with Ali Abdelaziz in the past? Yeah, the Kawa brothers and the Abdelaziz uh, crew got beef, son. This has been brewing for a while. God, this is, this is so MMA. Yeah, see, we're this, talking about the PFL thing. This is some peak MMA No, man, shit. I was sitting at home on, well, I think, Sunday morning. I feel, maybe, I hope I haven't conflated all this in my mind. I feel like I was going through Twitter. I was reading about Chris Curtis uh, retiring and then come, coming back and getting knocked out. I was reading about Ali Abdelaziz allegedly slapping, walking up to Abe Kawa and slapping him backstage at PFL. And I was, like, trying to process the Conor McGregor thing. And I was like motherfuckers are making it hard for me to stick around this yeah. sport, man. Like, 
hard to feel good of a Sunday morning about your fanship and your career, frankly, being like, <laughs> this is where I'm at. Yep. This is what I do. This is the world I'm in, apparently. I just love how when I hear, when I see the headline, manager's scuffle at PFL event, I'm like, well, I know one person who's involved right off the top of my And if you ask me to guess at least the last name of the other party, I feel like I can probably nail that one too. Yeah. It's just like you, the, the Ali Abdelaziz thing, it's amazing this is one of those things like we used to talk about with the TRT era where you hope that the wider sports world does not find out what is happening regularly. Yeah. Can you imagine if two agents got in a, like two mainstream sports agents got in a fight at like an NFL game or backstage at a, a hockey game or Major League Baseball? It'd be the only thing on sports TV for the next week. And the unanimous condemnation that would follow, everybody would be like, these two guys are wrong and there will be some consequences for this. And we are all in agreement that, that they fucked up. And in MMA, it's like, oh, these guys. And we're all, if anything, we're almost entertained by it. Like, oh, here we go. Another Ali Abdelaziz acting crazy out there. Oh, we just hope there's video. I don't, we get too used to this kind of shit. Yeah. I, for one, have to say... I'm not particularly entertained by it at this point. Next, last question this week from Alex Pacey, and then we'll wrap up. Am I losing my mind, or did I just see Eric Anders lose gum out of his mouth at the end of the fight, or was he casually putting a tooth back in? I did not see this, but this is at the end of uh, Eric Anders and Gerald Mearshart, the curtain jerker on the ESPN uh, Plus portion i guess it's all espn plus but the main card of the espn plus 19 event uh anders did win this fight via split decision but i don't know i don't know if the grill is still intact on your boy or not your boy eric your boy anders though it does make me think about back when it was pretty obvious that benson henderson was fighting with a damn toothpick in his mouth yeah, he would flip it out uh, in between rounds. Or you'd flick it out like like right at the final horn. You can see him like turn off, walk back to his corner, and then there appears the toothpick in his mouth. And you're going, are you out of your fucking mind? You, are you out here like it was so important to you to have that toothpick that you got to sneak a toothpick into your mouth while you fight? That's I'm, insane. I'm looking at Eric Anderson's uh, social media presence here. I'm not seeing anything about him losing a tooth. Looks like he is uh, pretty excited about the NFL. Okay. On Sunday, I don't know if you know this. He played a little college football. Yeah, I've heard that. Played at a major university. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, it they mention see- it every now and then. I have to think if he lost a tooth, he would let us know, right? That's you're crying out for a social media post of your tooth, right? I, those do tend to play really well. I mean, that's. Are you on Twitter or are you on the gram? Because I was on that's Twitter. You, you'd go to the gram if you want to talk about the tooth that you lost. All right, let me check it out. Or alternatively, maybe the gram will tell us if he's just very enthusiastic about chewing gum. Like, I mean, either of those things could happen. Eric Anders Instagram. Let's see here. This is exciting. This is what people tune in for. The future of podcasts is real time trying to find somebody's no, Instagram. I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing anything about the tooth. I'm just seeing a picture of him. Smiling with some maybe his family here at ringside after getting the win. I don't see any obvious missing teeth. So the forensic analysis here leads me to believe no lost tooth for Eric Anders. This is good work we've done here today. Sleuthed that out live on the podcast. Yeah, that's content, baby. That's what that is. In any case, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Of course, we'll be back on Wednesday doing the live chat over on the Patreon. That's for all levels of patrons from $1 to $10. And then, of course, we'll also be cutting the uh, Patreon Movie Club about Brick, available for the top-tier patrons at the $10 level. You know how to get in touch with the show. If you want to do it, you go to the website, comainevent.com, click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. You can also sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, While you're there, that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. You got anything else you want to throw in here? 
I'm going away next week. Are you? Yeah. Jesus, you just went away. You were just in Australia. Where are you going this time? England, remember? Oh, that's right. So you did tell us about this before. Yeah. We have been warned. It's my birthday coming up, going on a a vacation, an actual vacation. It's been a long time since I took one of those. So this week of the co-main event podcast will be uninterrupted, and then next week we're probably off. Is that right? Next week will be interrupted as fuck. (laughs) Okay. That's uh, that's the official scheduling yeah. terminology. Uh-huh. Interrupted as fuck. All right. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You gotta say it right there. Interrupted as fuck. Are you gonna be over there from England, like cutting a co-main event podcast? You gonna be? I can bring a microphone on, on your phone at the pub, watching the little footy, get on the horn and talk to me. Footy is an Australian man. Yeah, but they cover it. I'm watching football. Southampton versus Leicester City. I got tickets, man. Wife is going on this trip again. Yep. What are your kids doing? Hanging with my parents. Nobody's very happy about it. <laughs> I won't accept you. Except me. You guys are overjoyed. <laughs>